Mr. Derek Vienhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yeah, Deke. Kevin M. Folta is a professor and chairman of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida. From 2007 to 2010, he helped lead the project to sequence the strawberry genome and continues to research photomorphogenesis in plants and compounds responsible for flavor in strawberries. Dr. Folta hosts the Talking Biotech podcast, a weekly podcast about genetic improvements in plants, animals, microbes, and medicine. So, uh, Dr. Folta, thanks for being on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. This is great. Thanks for the invitation. No problem. So, can we start to lay a base maybe for the conversation with uh, you telling us a bit more about your specific work uh, regarding genetics, uh, photomorphogenesis, <laughs> and the sequencing of the strawberry genome? <laughs> well, it's all over the place. But yeah. what, really what, what, what you find is that I'm a scientist who really has uh, many different interests. I, I, I'll chase any tangent that looks like it's really intriguing, and if, especially these days where funding is hard to find. If you can find some uh, funding that looks like you could apply for it and come up with an innovative project, then I tend to take those on. So my work exactly, we're using genomics tools to study strawberry flavor, which is uh, we're using really clever techniques, and I don't want to go into detail here, but really interesting ways to find the genes associated with flavor so we can engage better traditional breeding. Photomorphogenesis is just the way in which plants respond to light environment. So it literally means changing plant form with light. And in the days of uh, these modern indoor farms, uh, urban agriculture, growing plants under LED, this kind of thing, uh, this is a really relevant project product, a real, I'm sorry, really relevant area. Um, we learn a lot about how to change the way plants grow, the colors they accumulate, their sensory quality, their uh, nutraceutical value. We do this just by changing the light environment. And the last thing we work on these days is um, a project which uses plants to, to uh, produce novel compounds. And every plant produces a different compound, and once in a while we find something that is either herbicidal or um, perhaps uh, changes the color flavors, whatever of the plant. And uh, we're thinking about these as the next generation of environmentally and human-safe herbicides, um, and some which may be plant-specific. So that's coming soon. Cool. Um, speaking of the photomorphogenesis stuff, uh, is, can you speak to any other uh, areas that they're using light to change things? Like I heard on, a, I think it was a Radiolab podcast about uh, light LED using, uh, them using LEDs for Alzheimer's treatments or something like that. There's like wow, light can be used in in various other ways as well, right? Like is is light like being used in in that sense in science and in other capacities? Well, there's some thoughts on that. It, that there are some uh, non-visual therapeutic uses where you do have non-visual sensors in your in your head, um, which condition you towards um, uh, circadian rhythms and uh, right. so light dark cycles, diurnal cycles, circadian cycles. There's a lot of interesting ways in which light has an ability to influence biology, but it's much more profound in plants because plants are rooted in one place, and you can't get up and walk away from stress, so they're very sensitive to different parts of the spectrum. Uh, humans, uh, were, you know, animal, other, other animals that are a little more mobile, lost their ability to depend on these cues as rigorously as plants do. 
Huh, interesting. Um, so jumping straight to GMO technology, can, can you lay out what are the biggest accomplishments globally of, of GMO tech and food production or medicine and biofuels, any of those? What are the, what are the greatest things right now that have, that have, that have been achieved? Sure, let's start with medicine. Uh, medicine is undoubtedly insulin, and insulin production used to be done by picking up uh, pancreases off the slaughterhouse floor and purifying the insulin from them, and it led to allergies, contamination, all kinds of problems occasionally. Uh, people didn't have uh, good reactions always with bovine or, well, cow or pig insulin, and, um, and it's co-purifying impurities. So when you could take the human gene for human insulin and put that in bacteria, you could now have bacteria producing 100% human insulin, which is pretty cool. Then you have the issue of um, uh, the uh, human growth hormone is made in a similar way, which is great. Uh, that's another huge breakthrough. But these are from 1970s, right? These are old. This is old stuff. Now you turn the clock ahead to uh, now when we're re-engineering poliovirus, herpes virus, to deliver anti-cancer treatments. And um, it's, it's a very potent new technology called immunotherapy. We're basically re-engineering viruses that are extremely aggressive to do the things we want them to do. Ah. And, yeah, fighting cool fire stuff. with fire. Yeah, or, or even even better yet, fighting fire with incredibly hot, dangerous plasma. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it, it one-ups. This, this, um, uh, you know, you're taking on cancer with viruses that now are programmed against cancer, and it works. I mean, it's, it's not science fiction. There are people who are being cured by this now almost every day. Yes. So, then you, so if you go to plants, plants are, the, um, are kind of the hot button because this is where we're thinking about food. And people think funny. You know, it's, food is a difficult topic. And the three big breakthroughs there are really the only three that have been deployed in any appreciable way. It's virus resistance and things like papayas and squash. It's resistance to insects in corn and um, cotton, namely, and then resistance to herbicides, which happens in um, in uh, canola, cotton, corn, uh, sugar beets, and um, and uh, soybeans. So it's really just a couple of different traits and a couple of different crops, but those have been in use now for um, those traits for going on twenty years. Right. Uh, okay, so there there is a scientific consensus uh, clearly on this on the current safety or lack of dangers of GMO uh, crops. Now, can you talk to um, why do some countries either limit their use or have outright bans? And do the countries that have outright bans do they import GMO crops at all? Um, oftentimes, I think there's only one country that doesn't allow any kind of import or growth, and I think that's Ecuador. Um, the um, or Peru, it's Ecuador, and okay. and um, other countries have either banned their growth because, and in other ones, it's not necessarily even that they banned them. They like the EU has not really banned anything. What it's done is it's limited, limited. what it approves. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't approve any new varieties. So Spain grows uh, GM corn varieties from the 1990s, and they still grow them on about thirty uh, percent of their acreage or something. Um, but uh, other countries do import. Certainly, Europe imports monster amounts of GM soy and GM uh, soy meal and GM corn for feeding cattle. Okay. Um, 
so is, is is this figure accurate that the U.S. exports 60% of its corn to, to the to uh, other places in the world? And is that uh, showing that the U.S. is a so-called breadbasket for the world for food production? Well, we're one of the breadbaskets. I think right. to call uh, so U.S. and Brazil and Argentina are very large exporters of grain, and it mostly is to sustain animals. Uh, we also use quite a bit for fuel, and a little bit of it goes into human food consumption directly. So things like corn starch, corn oil, uh, high fructose corn syrup, um, soybean uh, products, uh, soybean oil, uh, sugar from sugar beets. So it's always the products that go into the food. It's So when people say GM food, there's not really any food product that's engineered. It's products that come from genetically engineered plants. And so that's what's so always curious to me is, the oil from a genetically engineered soybean is identical to the oil from a non-genetically engineered so- soybean. It just was a different kind of plant that made it. Right, makes sense. Um, can you speak to the stacked trait, the fear of stacked traits, or or why that is um, a ridiculous um, assumption to assume that a, pl- a crop that has more than one desired trait then becomes more dangerous, supposedly? Yeah, that's a good point. It really is just a question of moving the goalpost that when science failed to show any kind of harm associated with individual traits, people began to say, well, wait a minute, you don't know if in combination, then maybe something magical happens. And it's magical thinking. Uh, we don't think that way about traditional breeding where we have 40,000 different genes, maybe 100,000 different variants, um, different alleles and different splice variants. We don't worry about that at all. And that's kind of, and, and the funny part is, most of those are unknown. Yet you put two genes that you understand very well together, and people claim that this has some additional risk, which that's just not true. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, that's exactly the logical fallacy, moving the goalposts, right? They Just creating a fear where one doesn't exist just because of some a stacking of two, uh, apparently good things, that when you stack them together, it creates a bad thing even though that's not been shown to, to be a bad thing. Right, and then the proteins that are stacked are the BT protein, which provides insect resistance, and the enzyme called EPSPS, which serves in shikimic pathway metabolism. So one of them is in the chloroplast, one of them is in the cytoplasm. There are two proteins that have nothing to do with each other and never have any interaction. And so there, it, there's no reason to even begin to think that they would plausibly cause any uh, other further disruption or harm. Yeah, and and I've even heard um, it characterized as, uh, for example, the the weeds that, uh, sorry, what is it called? The the, the Roundup Ready crops that then the mm-hmm. weeds the weeds can um, they adopt the the resistance of the plant and then they are uh, maybe you could explain that a little better than me. Yeah, but, not quite. Uh, they try to characterize it as they, like these weeds become mutant-like and they break fences and they break building, you know, concrete. Like they'll try to characterize it like a supervillain almost. Yeah, well, they they call that super weeds, but it's just the way to really kind of further disparage the technology. What you're talking about, and it isn't that the genes move from the, the genetically engineered crop to the weed. What it is is that in the field, weeds are under tremendous pressure 
evolutionarily, or it should say um, selection-wise, when you're applying an herbicide over and over and over again to the same field, the plants that have a little bit of resistance or maybe some sort of genetic change from mutation that allows them to be more resistant, now all of a sudden those are growing through that herbicide. And what you find are that um, there are natural natural mechanisms of herbicide resistance, of glyphosate resistance, which is the herbicide in Roundup, where either the plant cell turns it over, maybe moves it to a part of the cell where it's not relevant because the enzyme it disrupts is in one compartment in the chloroplast. If it can put it into what's called the vacuole in the middle of the plant, the herbicide never sees the enzyme it inhibits. Um, sometimes it never gets in. There's um, nine different mechanisms by which you can evolve herb, um, glyphosate tolerance. And so this happens naturally. And the problem is, is that when that happens, it's very, very hard for farmers. And it is a major problem in certain parts of the United States. Hmm. Uh, and that's just a random mutation, the development of the, what we call the evolution of the plant. That's a, Is that correct to us? Yes, um, that's true. In uh, So, for instance, in Palmer amaranth, which is a noxious weed that grows extremely huge and takes up um, and has jillions of seeds, Palmer amaranth gets through glyphosate tolerance by expanding the gene family. So the gene that encodes the protein, which is the enzyme that does the metabolism that glyphosate disrupts, it has expanded the islands of these genes. So it makes millions and millions, well, I shouldn't say millions. It makes many more copies, makes millions of seeds, makes many, many more copies of the of this particular gene. And when you have more copies, you make more of the product, and so you make enough to overcome the enzyme. Ah. And, I mean, I'm sorry, overcome the herbicide. And right. so that's, what's, uh, that's why amaranth is resistant. It just made more copies. Okay. Um, can you tell us uh, and our audience about Norman Borlaug? Uh, he is known as the father of the Green Revolution and credited with saving over one billion lives from starvation. Why is he important and, and what work did he do? Well, it would, it would take about an hour to go through all of, I mean, it didn't begin <laughs> to scratch the surface. Borlaug was a revolutionary thinker and he was uh, somebody who was extremely bothered early in his life by seeing instances of poverty and uh, and uh, people in the depression or people who had no food and was very committed as an agricultural um, coming from an agricultural background uh, to feeding more people and long story short is he took some rather innovative genetic steps to change the way that world's food staples were raised so corn and rice wheat and did this in countries like Mexico India and Pakistan uh, where he was very well revered as uh, as a savior who changed the way they farm and changed the varieties that were there. And he had plenty of critics then, and he still pushed through and wanted to solve the problem for people. And still goes down as one of the uh, people we should know and probably should be a, a modern-day hero in the minds of many. And he won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work, is that right? Yes, 1970 won the Nobel Peace Prize. And, and so was his work, it, it was a multitude of things. It wasn't just GMO technology. It was, it was farming practices and other things. Well, Norman Borlaug's main work really preceded the genetic engineering era. Uh, Borlaug's work was done with traditional breeding, but breeding traits from plants which uh, normally wouldn't be considered to be bred together. So making extremely wide crosses to 
uh, maybe make plants have dwarfing characteristics so they wouldn't fall over in bad weather or, or they wouldn't lodge under heavy crop yields. And um, it, that was his major contribution, was being able to introduce these other traits, which made plants much more productive as hybrids. Okay. Um, can, we, can you um, shed some light on this uh, Saskatchewan, University of Saskatchewan uh, professor um, that, was, that has had a hit piece written on him by the CBC, um, making the case once again that uh, it's such a bad thing to be connected to the company Monsanto. Um, can you shed some light on that situation? And maybe we can jump into how do you explain to the public how to separate in their minds the company from the science or the companies from the science? Yeah, this is a huge issue. And uh, what happened to Dr. Peter Phillips is reprehensible. Uh, Dr. Phillips is one of 100 scientists, which released 100 scientists, where a group called U.S. Right to Know, it's a, it's a, it's a organization, that a non-governmental organization. They receive mountains of money from something called the Organic Consumers Association, which really isn't a, anything to do with organic farming and organic growing. They're an anti-GMO group, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're awful. Um, they they go after they always write articles about scientists that aren't true. They've written stuff about technology that's not true. They're a disinformation organization, uh, sadly, because there's a lot of good things about organic agriculture that you know they really do a disservice to organic agriculture. Um, so anyway, uh, OCA pays USRTK to obtain the records of scientists using Freedom of Information Act. Sorry, what is USRTK again? A U.S. Right to Know. This is an oh, organization. Right yes, yes. Yeah, this is that non-governmental organization out of Oakland. Yeah. And uh, it's really just a couple of people. It's Gary Ruskin, um, uh, Stacy Malkin, um, then a former journalist who used to work for Reuters, but now she works for them writing articles for U.S. Right to Know, but putting them in places that confuse people into thinking it's actual journalism when it's really just advocacy for the organization. So anyway, they use Freedom of Information Act to obtain emails from professors, folks like me, mm-hmm. and they obtain thousands and thousands and thousands of emails. And, you know, most of us are too busy to sit around and think about how every email can be misinterpreted. So they take things out of context and say, and, and what they, they hand those emails to a reporter who then runs with it and writes the story that USRTK wants written. And the guy at CBC did this to Phillips. Phillips had four interactions with Monsanto that were out of 700 pages of email that they singled out and said, ah, look, he's, look at it, he's how corrupt this guy is interacting with Monsanto. There was no evidence that he did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. He, he, um, he took part in a series of writings, as did I, that were made to help the public understand more about genetic engineering. It was just writing that someone asked us to do, and we do that. Um, the company, Monsanto Company, had something to do with that. They were part of the folks who were making the request, so who cares? You know, I'll write for anybody who wants to write. They don't tell me what to write. They didn't tell Phillips what to write. Um, the other part of this was... Um, uh, was they said that he, he had he gave Monsanto oversight into a um, into a um, into editing 
if they in the right. into, into a guest list for yes, some yes. sort of conference, and you know, no one knows what that means. Um, right. You know, he, he doesn't even know. So it just was all these kind of like weird, circuitous things that they could paint a very good man and a great scholar in a negative way. And the reason they do this is they want an asterisk next to your name when people Google you, yes. because. Folks like me, we're, we're helping, we're changing minds, we're helping people understand science, and they need to stop that. They need to silence the scientists. Plus, if they can, you know, take out a few people, make us Google dead, it scares away other scientists from participating. Now, uh, on the show, sometimes we, we try to psychoanalyze these, these individuals, and uh, not that I have the credentials to do so, but you sometimes wonder, okay, so this activist John Doe or whoever the person might be is working for an NGO such as the organic um, or, or what's the other one the scientists the concerned scientists uh, organization? well US, US right to know is the one organization they're the main one that that is kind of the industry hit group um, but the mandate is just to the right to know right to, to know whether a thing has been genetically modified or not and isn't that okay to have labeling and well, that's that would be that would be fine, but that's not what they're doing. Oh, so it when goes I, further than that. Okay. Oh, sure. When when they gave me um, when I got my FOIA request back in February of 2015, I, I never saw anything like this. I thought, why? Who wants to read my emails? And if a place called Right to Know wants to know, I'll give them a call. You know, why have my university spend millions of dollars, well, which is now millions of dollars, a million dollars, uh, producing and having to redact and have attorneys go through all of my thousands of emails um it, it's ridiculous to to stick to taxpayer with that bill so i called up gary ruskin the guy who runs the thing and i had an hour-long conversation with him and i said what can i tell you i mean what do you want to know because i want the emails i said well i'd be happy to tell you anything about my funding it, it's all public information it's all on my website he said no i want the emails so it was about them getting the emails which time would show they took sentences out of context. They gave them to reporters, and reporters wrote stories that weren't true. And it caused me tremendous personal harm, hassle, professional ha harm and hassle. I've been uninvited from uh, conversations. I've been called on one day from NPR to serve on a panel. And then the day of, they'll say, oh, we can't have you on because you're connected to Monsanto. It was about shutting me up. And that's what they're trying to do to all the scientists and also discourage other scientists from becoming active in the discussion with the public. You know, what's perplexing to me is when we talk about scientific consensus and the opposing side or the activist side will say, uh, will argue, well, there is no scientific consensus. What is the definition of scientific consensus? Isn't it that the things are peer-reviewed, that the science checks out? It's not that there are a larger number of individuals on one side than the other. Isn't that correct? I can see. Yeah, science I can checks out. A consensus is just a currently accepted model, the current accepted um, idea based upon the, the literature and the evidence that's presented. And when you objectively analyze the evidence around genetic engineering, it's extremely clear. There is no evidence of harm. There are simple risks that we understand, things like the weed resistance and insect resistance that are evolving around the current methods, which we anticipated, and um, in some other kind of... Um, more social and economic issues like the ability of someone to grow the crop next to a farm that wants to label it as non-GM 
and now they have some seed that tests positive. You know, those kinds of issues are really a construct of they shouldn't be an issue. And so that's why I have a hard time with those. Um, it doesn't do anything to somebody's crop to have that gene in there. And so, you know, why worry about it? So Yes. The, so so, the, so there are there – are, so the, the scientific consensus is there, and then the, and the scientists say uh, we can't – essentially we can't – prove a negative or or we've it's been shown so far that there are no harm and there's no reason to believe that there would be harm and the other side says either either they will argue yes there has been which can then be proven false or they will say well i'm not satisfied with the evidence and i believe that a longer term period of study is needed to 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 fit my personal uh comfort level with gmos precisely uh, spoken like a uh, an affluent um, Westerner, right? You know, when you've got plenty of calories and plenty of food, and you can afford a ten dollar cup of pup- pumpkin biscuit, Whole Foods, you, you know, it, you have very different te- ideas about this technology than when you're someone like me who's been in impoverished countries who have seen you know starvation firsthand, uh, people who are in such decrepit shape that desperately need more food. And when you realize that there are technologies that can assist them in getting that, that are being kept from them by well-meaning, and I do mean that sincerely, uh, well-meaning Westerners, um, we got a problem there. And I, I think that these are people who are more like me than not in the way we think about um, politics and the way we think about the planet and the way we think about helping people in need. Yet they they are so tainted about their hate for a company that they say nobody should get the technology if a company can ever have a benefit from you know so in other words if farmers are using it in the United States and benefiting we want that technology to stop even if it means that somebody in Africa suffers and that just is the most corrupt thinking I can imagine. Yeah, it's strange thinking to me and to play devil's advocate for a minute and jump on their side. Um, I've heard activists say in, that production is actually not valuable to uh, world hunger and that instead we should, for example, build roads, increase the local farmers' incomes, increase roles for women, which I don't really follow that line of thinking because I would assume that uh, giving them the, the technology to, to better their crop yields and such directly would link to them having more income and having more state, like those things that they had listed would come from the tool given to them. And, it, and let's be clear, GMOs, is, it's not a, a winner-takes-all thing, right? We want this to be a tool in conjunction with other methods, right? No, you're exactly right. I mean, all those things you talk about, you know, educating women um, and more empowerment of women, water availability locally so that people don't have to walk five kilometers to get their daily water, which is mostly done by the women and children, and oftentimes done in vessels which are uh, not conducive or are dirty or, or, or contaminated. Um, a lot of horror stories, better roads, better post-harvest um, logistics, all of these things are huge. So people who say that, um, they're not wrong. need to be on the table including genetic engineering. Uh, it's not that any of these works in isolation or that any of these works as a, um, that any one of them is a solution anywhere. These are all certainly problems throughout the world and the way we, did, way we grow and distribute food. 
but undoubtedly, and it's undeniable, that genetic engineering can supply that one extra nutrient, maybe can supply um, uh, crops that survive stress better, survives insects better. We've shown that here. And, you know, and 18 million growers all over the world have used these technologies now. So it's, it's, um, it's one extra tool. And so folks who say things like that, I'm with them. I mean, I agree. I, I think we need better uh, logistics and, and distribution. Right. That's a big deal. But we also need to continually improve our genetics, and this is one part of it. That's all. Right. Um, and when you look around the map of who's using GMOs, it's actually, I mean, people point to these, uh, you know, small number of countries who, like we spoke earlier, either limit or ban them. But if you look at the world map of who's using these technologies, it's pretty much most of the countries, right? Um, it's probably, you know, I don't remember how many. Or sorry, I'm, I'm mistaking. I, I meant to say that uh, most of the countries have no regulation as far as they're they, they are allowing them to be used if they're available to be used. Now, that doesn't, uh, doesn't fall. Every country is not uh, using them, right? There's still just a handful. I think there's 38 countries that allow their use, and I think that's right. Um, I, I don't remember exactly what the number is, but okay. it's. Uh, but you have you have countries throughout um, South America, some in Africa. Um, certainly, China uses some things. Um, there, you know, it's 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 growing. Australia certainly, and you're seeing um, more and more of this all the time, and more countries are adopting these kinds of strategies. There are countries in Africa that are growing crops like uh, cassava and um, the uh, banana they call matoke um, and other crops that are suffering from horrible diseases or lack of nutrient content and they're being fortified with genetic engineering and it's being done, it's not Monsanto and Syngenta and Dow, it's the government of Uganda and it's the government of Kenya and the government of Nigeria. And they have active research programs to take care of their own people. And there are people from Greenpeace and other NGOs on the ground telling people that if they eat it, they'll get cancer. If they eat it, they'll be sterile. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, uh, it's, again, the same old thing, throwing themselves in front of an outstanding way to solve a problem for people. Yeah. Um, something that's related to me is uh, recently I had on a physicist from the UK, uh, from Oxford, David Robert Grimes, and he wrote a, a piece on conspiracy theories uh, related to you know, the autism uh, link to vaccines and the moon landing, things like this. And he, he basically wrote a paper that shows how many people would have to be involved uh, and then how long these things would actually come out based on humans not being able to keep secrets. And you tweeted something today that was uh, what we spoke about earlier about the, the freedom of information, getting the email. You, you have a list of the similarities between climate denial and anti-GMO activists, which are basically the list we went through earlier. Fund deceptive NGOs, harass scientists, uh, cherry-pick uh, data to support their claim, push a narrative to the, to the media, and then declare victory while f- continuing to abuse the scientists. And I wanted to touch on... Uh, what you just mentioned about governments around the world using these technologies. Isn't it true that whatever works will be used and whatever is is most effective, the cheapest, this goes for governments and for companies like Monsanto, uh, regardless of what you think of them, good business is safe business. And to me, it would follow that 
Monsanto would welcome practical regulations, independent studies, comparing data, all these things that would that would benefit their. Because if the argument is that they are these money hungry, you know, okay, let's grant that they're money hungry, which companies and corporations are often wanting to uh, increase revenue, right? While doing the thing that they are trying to do, you can't just have a company that just makes money out of thin air. You have to do something beneficial to something of value. To in this case, giving the world food uh, that sure that will make you money but but if these things were so dangerous or ineffective or expensive for the farmers or this and this and that wouldn't it follow that Monsanto would switch up their their game plan does that make sense oh, oh totally and, and this is one of my, my the points I always bring up there you know everybody says oh they're a monopoly they're not a monopoly there are dozens Starbucks and dozens makes of- more money than them I think that's true. I know that Whole Foods is a bigger company than them. But they have, um, uh, if you look at the seed companies, which really they're a seed company. That's what they are now. They're, they still have the major production of glyphosate, but I think that's their only chemical product. They, um, they're they a seed company, genetic improvement. And most of what they do is fruits and vegetables that go into conventional production and organic production, which is funny. Um they uh, they use they, they they make seeds, and they make seeds for farmers who are their clients. And farmers are tough customers. If you give farmers seeds that don't work or fail to thrive or don't have great traits or great yields or great resistance to disease and weather extremes, they they don't buy it from you again. And so they um, the plants that are planted are rigorously tested, the genetically engineered seeds are rigorously tested, 30 locations over three seasons at least. And um, if they pass all of that, then farmers trial it, usually a couple of rows or you know smaller scale, and then decide the next year if they're going to buy it again. And if it doesn't work, they don't buy it. It's expensive. You know, Technology costs a lot, but they buy it because it works. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't work, they buy it from somewhere else. So yeah, they don't force them to 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 buy them, right? They, they're not right. coming in there with uh, I don't know some some hired goons and kind of forcing them to buy their product over another product. I, I love telling farmers that. <laughs> hey, guess what? I hear you. I hear they force you to buy all their seeds you buy. <laughs> Listen, yeah. you know, I, I mean, you know, they, nobody forces a farmer to do anything. And, I mean, they do it because it's their passion, because it's their mission. It's their job they know and the job that they've taken on and the, the important role to feed people. And uh, farmers are there. And so the end farmer. So Monsanto doesn't make food. They make seeds and they they provide seeds that farmers use to grow grains and cotton and, uh, you know, a couple of couple of uh, fruit crops. Uh, it's uh, or sugar beets, you know. It's that's what this is, and there's a lot of companies that make there's six companies that make genetically engineered seeds now, um, and more all the time. Now that the stuff's all off patent, you'll see quite a few more in the next few years. And um, again, to jump on the devil's advocate train, you know, some people, you know, this whole Monsanto thing. I have you know I have friends and different people I know that'll say the same thing that you know they're an evil company, this and that. Um, and when you look it up on Wikipedia, yeah, there has been a lot of uh, litigation they've been involved in. Now, not to get too deep in the weeds, pun intended, but uh, what what sort of litigation is really abnormal that they've been involved in? Like, they, like most, a lot of companies have to litigate 
uh, things because of contractual obligations with clients that are broken or uh, uh, with them it's the big one is Agent Orange right with Vietnam and all that sure back in the no they were they were they were one of sixteen companies that manufactured an herbicide that was uh, called Agent Orange it was one of the rainbow herbicides so they had Agent Blue Agent Red Agent Yellow um, which were different combinations of different herbicides and Agent Orange is a mixture of something called two four D just 2,4-deoxy, uh, uh, whatever it is, 2,4-dichlorophenoxy <laughs> acid, and 2,4,5-T. Uh, and it uh, turns out 2,4,5-T had a dioxin that co-purified with it. So when you decide to use um, herbicides in jungle warfare, and there are people involved who are deploying it, and the herbicide is contaminated, all the companies that produced it were hurting people. Um you know why would we weaponize herbicides to begin with is not a pro- not a question for Monsanto. It's a question for all of us. Um, you know it was a weapon of warfare, mm-hmm. um, and so they were there were they have been dealing with lawsuits from things like that. Monsanto also, as a chemical company, uh, had uh, had cleanups and spills and Superfund projects with their name on it. There's no question about that. Yeah. But in I think it was 1998 or 96 that they divested their chemical part of their business, went to um, you know I don't even remember anymore. I think it was a company called Sandoz or um, uh, or it was a it was a company in um, Switzerland that bought out their whole chemical side. So today they're probably part of Pfizer, that whole chemical side. And Monsanto, as it as it went off as a seed company said, we're going to work on crop genetics. And they said, well, should we change the name of that? And they said, no, we won't. That <laughs> It'll cost us about 80 bucks to change all the stationery. <laughs> so they, they, rolled, they rolled with the name that was attached to all the bad stuff. And, um, and so that's the legacy that they kind of inherited. And uh, as they started in the seed business, they were dealing with one strike against them. And their uh, transparency and their... Um, uh, interaction with the public left a little bit to be desired early on, so it didn't make things any better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, but I think it's important for people to, to keep remembering to to not just con- uh, not just attribute GMO technology to this Monsanto company, for example, but to separate the two things that one is sci- a scientific technology, one is a company. And, and but let's be clear: in Monsanto, they have scientists that work on the technology. Is that correct? Like. Is it a joint sort of thing that there are scientists elsewhere, like at your, your university or anywhere in the world that are working on the tech, and then there's companies that also employ scientists to work on the tech, and they would come to maybe sometimes, you know, converging uh, technologies or the same idea at multiple at the same time sort of thing, or is that true? Well, it, it works in two different ways. So you basically, they have a, you know, they're a company of 25,000 employees, and they've got an extensive pipeline of technologies and the legal know-how of how to deploy them. So companies like Monsanto, Dow, Syngenta, uh, Bayer, BASF, and DuPont Pioneer, they all have um, this kind of technology down cold, and they, they, they have ma- massive pipelines. China just bought Syngenta, so they have all of our currently what was a U.S.-based pipeline and genetically engineered crops now going to China. Um, a lot of times, companies will come to a university and say, can you verify what we've done? Here's the, here's the test that we need to run. Um, you know, do it independently and see what you got. 
and we'll cover the costs of the postdoc on that project. Here's 50000 a year to cover that. And uh, you repeat the test. Other times, universities are interacting with companies because we come up with great technology that they want. And so they have to license it because it's our intellectual property. And so they license that technology from us and then use that as they may and then pay a little bit something back as a royalty to the university. So those are the major ways in which we interact. Okay. Uh, so recently I, I YouTubed GMO debate, and there's a great one on the Intelligence Squared debates. And it has, I forget the gentleman's name from Monsanto. He was also on the Bill Nye uh, show. Yeah, Rob yeah, great, uh, smart guy. And then he had his uh, colleague there, another scientist. And then the other side, he had two uh, two activists. And what was uh, interesting to me is that they do the vote at the beginning. So you had it about th- a third uh, each split between uh, yes, no, and undecided. Um, and then by the end of the debate, you actually had the, the no's were about the same, and the undecideds pretty much all jumped over to the yes. So you had like a 30% increase, which... I felt was kind of a good sign for the 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 side of the consensus, the side of science. So that's kind of a positive note. What do you what do you see as maybe the future? Because there could be the gloom and doom aspect of maybe this technology is going to keep being suppressed and the fear is going to keep going. Or, or what do you see uh, both in terms of the technology itself, what could come next, or and also sort of the politics and, and what people's uh, are people's minds changing. Well, let me, uh, I'll put it this way, that right now there's a, the new technology is called gene editing, and it's genetic engineering, but at a much more precise level, even though currently it's extremely precise. And the nice part about genetic engineering through gene editing, and sometimes you'll hear this called CRISPR technology, yep. um, this allows a scientist to make a genetic change, but not leave any hardware behind. So in other words, it's a way of creating the change you want, but there's no way anyone would know you did it and that's not meant to be subversive but what if people are saying that we're contaminating plants by leaving this stuff in we're essentially able to create the change that could happen by natural mutation and in that way should be of no objection um so that's coming and that's uh this last week israel said they won't regulate it switzerland said we won't regulate it in the u.s we're trying to figure out how we're going to regulate it hopefully we won't kill it China has invested $4 billion in this technology in the last few years. So this is coming, and it will happen, and it's going to be revolutionary. Um, with that being said, um, you're, you know, when you talk about the Intelligence Square debate, it parallels the debate we're seeing in the public, and it's a debate that, in my opinion, is over. Um, I think it's done. Uh, when you look at there are people on one side who refuse to understand it, who don't like it, and will never learn and refuse to accept it. They're like the anti-vaxxers, the climate deniers, the moon landing deniers, the chemtrail <laughs> people. They do not believe the science, and they will not accept the science. And what we learned in, as scientists who are com- science communicators is we, ha- we had to stop trying to convince them. We wasted all our time with them. Now we spend our time with the people in the middle. We talk to the moms who are concerned about their food, the dads who are concerned about their kids' health, the um, athletes that are worried about what they're eating. We're talking to the middle. And what we're able to say is, you know, what we're worried about as scientists is our health, our food, our family's health, the environment, that farmers have food, and that how our farmers are 
producing and staying in the black, and that we have food for the neediest people on the planet. That's what's important to us, and this technology is part of that. And when you do that, when you come at it with that approach, the middle just melts. They go, this is great. Why, yep. why have we been so afraid? Yep. So to me, this is um, that's exactly what Rob Fraley and Allison Van Eenenem did in that debate, and they were both brilliant. Allison's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, they were up against, you know, Chuck Benbrook and, uh, and um, uh, I don't know why I'm drawing Mellon. a blood. Yeah, Margaret Mellon, Mellon. And, uh, and from Union of Concerned Scientists. And she's always been anti-GMO forever. Um, Benbrook also, um, you know, he's written many things that um, have said that, you know, his whole thing is kind of, he's an economist, not a, not like a hard scientist and always is kind of bending the statistics to fit his conclusion. And, um, I, and that's been shown, um, demonstrated very well by Andrew Kniss and others. And, and the funny part is he's the guy who was paid by industry, um, for salary and research yet, you know, us right to know leaves him alone. Nobody really cares about that. He's a saint in their eyes. Yet he's the one who's paid and he's the one who's coming up with, uh, in quotes, research that um, supports a certain um, outcome. Yeah. So it's kind of weird. Yeah. So uh, keeping in line with the science communication uh, discussion, you wrote a great blog entry on the on the Bill Nye uh, Netflix show, Bill Nye Saves the World, which I I found that the internet is now kind of found their consensus with that show that that it it did turn off a lot of people who thought of him as their hero in science communication could you summarize at all your that blog entry and why that show uh, fell short with communicating the science oh sure and that that's but that's really ties in with what we're talking about which is and is a great lesson for anyone listening is that you know if you have people if you want to communicate about these topics you have to identify the right audience and what bill nye's show does is it talks it preaches to the choir and it's a real rah-rah cheerleader fest and it's not necessarily the most effective some of it's really good i i love the stuff on the vaccine episode uh, was really really solid the problem is is that when you do these rah-rah moments and you just energize your base it becomes more political and i'm even using political vernacular there uh, and what it does is it turns off the other side it turns off the people in the middle who feel that they're being talked down to or that their concerns are not being felt. And as a scientist, I realized that the most important thing I can do as a communicator is speak to that middle and understand why they feel the way they do, understand their fears. And what NICE showed does is the same thing we used to do is say, well, this is the way it is. This is what the science says. And if you don't like it, then too bad. And, uh, you know, those of you who are, who totally don't get it, well, you're idiots. Yeah, and that's, so that's basically it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, there's even the one moment in I forget which episode, but he holds up a giant stack of uh, paper and with and these are the studies that he's referring to, but he doesn't actually explain. He just says, "See, look, we got it right here," and he puts it down. It's almost like a joke, but it's yeah, it's like. Yeah. But the show only has 
certain amount of time, you know, they got to make it entertaining and all this too. So I can understand maybe where they would have fell short in the production sense trying to, you know, it was too quick. Let's go have a panel over here. Now let's cut that off. Let's go to a segment. Let's go to this. And that's kind of what we're trying to go, uh, get away from in today's uh, media world with you know with the long form podcast and this kind of thing that that expands further on these subjects he was just doing more of what we have on the CNN and the Fox News the the quick panels and the it's just not enough it's not enough to dig deep yeah i think i think to do that show right it could have been done right and what the way that you would do it right is by talking about what's most important to to well first you would say what are people saying about climate what are people saying about um, genetic engineering or vaccines. And when we hear these opinions, what does it really mean and why do people feel that way? That's the first step is understanding why people hold the concerns they do. Shows you're listening. It shows that you understand and, and can, you, if you're going to propose a solution, you have to first understand their problem. And then the next step is sharing your values. Why is it important that we have genetic engineering? And before, so we haven't even talked about the science. But we've spent 15 minutes of that show. But that's the way I would have done it. I would say, here's why it's necessary for us to open up this topic. Now, let me share with you what I know as a scientist. And here's the way that the science can satisfy the things we care about. And when we take that approach, we, can, we change everything. People don't understand why, why we're studying science and why we're it, itchy to use technology. They need to understand that part, not just that we can do it, but that we need to do it and that there's a reason to do it and that we're serving somebody by doing it. And that way people are a lot more warmer to technology. Right. Uh, okay. So where can people, if they want to find out more about all this stuff, they can listen to your podcast and do you have a website that they can go on and check out more information? Well, the, um, the, the best spot is um, if you just Google Illumination and blog. Um, my name's uh, Kevin Folta. That works out pretty well. The URL's clunky, and I should change that someday. Um, but uh, so it's um, that's on blog uh, Blogspot. The podcast is uh, Talking Biotech Podcast, and on Twitter, I'm at Kevin Folta, and you can find me pretty easy. Awesome. Well, Dr. Folta, thanks again for taking the time today to talk to us, and it's been very enlightening, and good luck with uh, all of your work, and hopefully the public will continue to listen and expand their minds and be open to these ideas and not be full of fear and distrust of science. Yeah, you bet. Very good. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. All right, thanks a lot. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the Decast. You can support the show by going to decast.ca and finding the Patreon link. Or you can share this episode on social media or tell a friend about it. You could also leave a review on iTunes or leave a comment on SoundCloud. Thank you again and tune in next time. Hey, Decast listeners. This is Trevor Twining from Niagara Podcasters Network. If you want other local Made in Niagara podcasts, then head over to Niagara Podcasters Network. Our hosts are sharing stories and podcasts that are made for Niagara and by Niagara. Hope to see you there. You can find us at niagarapodcasters.org.